The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 23, 12-35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatrius. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of God. Thank you, Mary Linda, for reading that passage for us this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. And we're continuing on in this series uh, in the book of Acts. We're in kind of this home stretch as the drama is is kind of reaching this, this uh, we're, we're racing to the end here of, of what will be Paul in the presence of Caesar, or at least that's where it's going. And um, 
I wanted to start by asking a question, uh, and it's a, it's kind of a, it's a question I want us to wrestle with in this, in this sermon, and it's a, it's a revealing question, it's a, it's a vulnerable thing to think about, I think, um, but the question is this, what is it that you want from God? What is it that you want from God? When you think about your relationship with God, how would you describe the terms of the agreement? Are there, in your mind, agreed upon expectations? Is there fine print? The way that you would know is when God doesn't do what is the expectation you feel it viscerally as, as God failing you somehow. I think if we're honest about it, many of us would say that, yeah, I have a way that I imagine God is supposed to relate to me. That there are terms of the agreement. That there are things that I feel like he's supposed to deliver in this relationship I have with him. And if we come from a country like America, where we've lived here for any amount of time, a lot of times our presumptions about who God is and what he's supposed to do for us get tied to provision. They get tied to some kind of, well, he's going to give me things. He's going to work things out so that I can do this or I can afford that or, you know. And it's not like, like most of the human story down through time where People pray to God for there to be rain or no longer a famine or the neighboring clan to not wipe out my family. We, we have generally more uh, presumptions and expectations along the lines of general comfort. Um, but we have them and we measure our relationship with God according to them. And we're all moving through this life with this vision of what our experience should be here and how God should play a role in that and what those expectations are as he relates to us as though it's his job to deliver those things as a show of his faithfulness to us. And so it can be really easy for us when we start to think about God and his role in our lives and what it is that we want from him and what it is that we expect in the fine print it can be easy for us to begin to think about the role that he plays in our lives as one who, whose job is basically to make the, 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 the chart of our lives look like, look like an ever-ascending trajectory upward. So he should have us on a path that is always just kind of going up, that each year is better than the last. And then what we do is we pour all of our energy, relational, emotional, spiritual, into then achieving this ideal of comfort that we've put in our minds as a picture of what this relationship with God is supposed to look like. And we measure his goodness and our place in the world by how well things are working out. And we can get really deeply theological here. 
Because what we can do is we can start to call everything that seems like a sign of good fortune, we can say that is a sign of God's blessing. And then every apparent setback is God's problem to fix quickly, if you don't mind. And if he will fix it, then he has the good fortune of being restored to our good favor. And this is a very theological way to move through the world. It's a view of God and who he is and who he is to us. And it can be exhausting. By the time we get to the end of this sermon, one of the things that I'm going to say is sometimes it is the purpose of God to move you from a bad situation to a worse situation. But let's get there by way of the passage. Sometimes I wonder if when God looks at us, we look a little bit like an ant farm. Like there's just a bunch of busy things happening down there. Just busy, 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 busy. And we're down here doing this busy stuff. We're moving from task to task. We're trying to climb higher. We're putting in the work to get noticed. We're busy. We're driven. We're always moving. When we walk through a passage like this, this passage reads to me like an ant farm. There's so much activity and there are so many people involved and so many reasons for what they're doing and they're just kind of moving around and it's just this, just, it's, it's chaotic. There's so many people, they're working angles, they're involved in this chain reaction of events, they have varying degrees of personal investment, but they're, but they're all in it. And so I want us to notice them as we walk through the passage, to see kind of who it is that's moving and populating this world that we're in. And then see how God is at work in the midst of it. So the first thing that I want us to see is we have this, this uh, angry crowd of zealots. So there's an angry crowd of zealots, and they're upset, and they're always upset. They move through life upset. It's who they are. And what they're upset about here is that they had failed in their attempt to directly hurt Paul. And they had failed in an attempt to convict Paul of a crime. And so they decided, all right, we're going to take it up a notch and we are going to plan an ambush and kill him. And so a group of about 40 or so men bind themselves to this oath not to eat or drink until the job is done. Now, see them. This is the perennially indignant. This is the perennially indignant who are governed by groupthink that they have declared to be their righteous cause. That, my friends, still exists in spades. We have, we live in a culture of the perennially indignant who are governed by groupthink because they've declared their cause to be the righteous cause. They're not just angry, they're angry together. And they love to be angry together. And they're working to take out their common enemy. And it's so simple. We have this common enemy. 
We have this shared anger. We have this focus. You may be a person who gives hours of your week to being perennially indignant and focused on a cause because it feels like a righteous cause. And you're just angry. And you're moving through the world this way. And you've reduced the problem down to one enemy. One party, one person, one relative, one whatever. And you've reduced it down. And that's what they do. They're obsessed with their anger. And they hatch this plan and they seek to persuade the Sanhedrin to appeal to the Romans to cooperate with them in setting a trap by leading Paul down this road where they know they can lie in wait. Don't let it be lost on us what it is that's actually happening here. Because what they're saying is they're not saying we're willing to lie in wait to kill Paul. What they're saying is we're willing to lie in wait to fight the Romans. Because to get to Paul, they're going to have to go through the contingent of soldiers that are escorting Paul. And what they're saying is we're willing to do that. Knowing, it's another way of saying we're willing to die. That's how mad we are. We're willing to get in a fight where we may die in order to have the satisfaction. This plot is going to come at a cost. And so you've got them in the ant farm, angry. And then you have this character this unexpected character that shows up. I love this in the Bible when you get these little Easter eggs that just kind of happen and then it just moves on and says nothing else. And it's this, that we meet this person who finds himself now in the story where he has overheard a plot and he has to do something with it. Who is it? It's Paul's nephew. Well, that's a great detail. Paul has family. <laughs> You don't really think of Paul as a guy who has family. And we don't know if this is like a blood sister or if this is a spiritual sister, you know, like you call people that you're really close to, aunt, you know. But Paul apparently has a nephew. And this nephew hears about the plot to kill Paul. And I just love that detail. I love, I love that we, we don't know who this person is, but that here he is and nothing is ever said about him again. What I, what I can say is I'm pretty sure Paul's nephew wasn't really looking for this bit of drama in his life. He probably wasn't looking to be the person who uh, kind of gains this knowledge that now has to be, something has to be done with it. He can't just keep it. He can't be silent about it. And so here he is. He's suddenly in possession of information he has to do something with. And so off he now goes in the ant farm. And he goes and he finds his way to Paul. And Paul hears him, says, thanks, nephew. And then says to the centurion who's guarding him, he calls him over. Who's the centurion? He's a guy with a job. He showed up for work. He didn't know what was going to happen today. He doesn't know what's going to happen the next day. But this is what happens. The prisoner he's guarding comes over and says, this kid needs to talk to Claudius Lysias. He has something really important to tell him. And the centurion says, all right, come with me. And so he takes him. This guy who's showing up for work takes him in his ant farm, takes him to Lysias. Lysias takes the boy by the hand into this chamber kind of away from listening ears so they can have a private conversation and he can tell him discreetly. 
And he hears what he has to say. Lysias is basically a middle manager. Lysias is a guy with some power, but not a lot of power. He's a tribune. He's like an alderman, maybe, or something. I don't know. He's, he's, he's a person, when you hear the term alderman, you probably think, I know that there are aldermen. I don't know what aldermen really do. Lysias is a tribune, and he's this middle manager, and he's got this job, and his job is to govern a parcel of Israel. And really what that means is his job is just to essentially ensure stability and peace. And so he hears this plan and he knows that what's about to happen here is going to jeopardize stability and peace. And that's not going to be good for him because he doesn't want to be a middle manager forever. He wants to be promoted out of the position that he's in. Well, how do you do that? You do the job. What's the job? Ensure peace and stability. How do you do that? Make sure that prisoners aren't murdered by mobs, Right? And so he knows Paul isn't safe in Jerusalem, and he knows that to keep him safe in Jerusalem, what he may have to do is engage in some form of military action, and he wants no part of that. And so what he does instead is he sits down and he writes a letter. Claudius Lysias has been a character in the story of Acts for the last several weeks. He keeps coming up because he's the guy in Jerusalem who's dealing with this situation. And you probably, when you think of the book of Acts and the characters in the book of Acts, you probably don't think, oh, Claudius Lysias, he's a, he's a big deal in there. But here he is, and he keeps showing up. And the reason I want to just spend a minute on him is because he's an interesting character. He's interesting in this. He's a Roman official. He's probably somebody who, who kind of worships pagan gods. Uh, or maybe he worships no God at all, and he's just kind of secular through and through. He's just, it's, all he's trying to do is just be a businessman. But he's deferential to Paul. He's deferential in the way that he treats Paul. And I bring this up because we live in a polarized culture where we want to be like the angry mob and say there are enemies, there are clear enemies, and the enemies are the people who don't believe what I believe. And all of them are monsters, and here you see, Lysias is not a monster. Self-absorbed, sure. Out for himself, yeah. But he's not a monster. And he's not Paul's enemy. And he's not intent on corruption. He's a little bit like Pilate in the Gospels where he hears what's happening. And he's like, I don't want any part of this. This is a religious skirmish. But they're trying to make it have to do with Rome. And so I have to hear it. I have to tease out what's going on here, but I don't really want to be. And so he's trying to tease out the crime against Rome. Is there any transgression here or is this just a religious matter? And so here what the Lord is doing is he's using this, this unbeliever and he's using him as a kind of angel of protection for Paul. He's a leader who is leveraging his power, whatever his motives may be, He's leveraging his power and his command for good. And so he has this escort put together that's going to take Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And it's an escort that's heavily manned and heavily armed, and they're built for speed. And I want you to see them assemble because it's probably 220-something guys soldiers. If you've been in the military or you have people in your life who are in the military, you can kind of almost picture these guys being summoned by their commanding officer and mumbling to each other, I guess we're going to go on a force march tonight. 
And they've got their stuff together and they're assembling and they're obeying orders. They're doing what they're told. They show up. I have a son in the army. I hear him talk about his life in the army and army buddies and the stories that he, that he has. And really what I'm hearing is that, yeah, there's just a chain of command and it's the way that it is. And you can see these guys being summoned for this overnight detail, maybe gotten out of bed. And they're not really sure what the significance of the mission is and they really don't care what the significance of the mission is. It's not really their thing to, to understand. Maybe some of them do, the achievers. But most of them are like, all right, I guess we're going to have a long walk ahead of us tonight, and that's the job. And that part of the ant farm is just a bunch of people with their backpacks getting organized and sorting out their stuff and making sure they have everything, and they're getting ready. And so you have this infantry and this cavalry and these horses, and they're designed to transport Paul those 60 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea as quickly as they can, and the intent is, to just, is for Paul to just disappear into the night. And so they're going to set off from Jerusalem, three hours after sunset. And what they're going to do as a big group is they're going to go 35 miles to Antipatris in order to be there by morning. And they'll hole up there. And in the morning, most of the soldiers will return to Jerusalem. And the rest of them, the cavalry in particular, will escort Paul the rest of the way. And so that's what they do. They get halfway to Governor Felix. They're out of the reach of the zealots. And at this point, most of them turn back and they go back to Jerusalem and they're back home. And then they continue on, the cavalry with Paul, and they're basically taking two things to Felix. They're taking to Felix this prisoner, and they're taking this letter, this letter written by Claudius Lysias. And so they arrive, and they give it to Governor Felix. Now, Governor Felix, he's in the ant farm. He is like Lysias, only he has more power. But he doesn't have ultimate power. He's a politician. He's probably biding his time in Caesarea so that he can be promoted out of Caesarea. He wants a better station. He's always looking around at the next rung. And that next rung really just kind of depends on his performance there. And so now he has this situation to deal with. And these soldiers from Jerusalem and this prisoner in this letter. And then we get the letter. And I love how Luke writes about the letter and he, he just says, that the letter was kind of like this. The gist of the letter was this. So Luke didn't read the letter, of course, because it was you know from Claudius Lysias to Felix, but he heard about it because maybe the letter was read aloud. and We don't really know, maybe Paul told him, but he gives us this letter, it gives us this approximation and it's a fascinating look into the world of Roman politics for those of you who think about the Roman Empire every single day which I do. So Lysias describes what happens with a fair amount of accuracy. He says, I have this prisoner, his name's Paul. He was about to be killed by an angry crowd. And then I saved him. Which is great. As far as Lysias could see, he says in his letter, I don't think this prisoner has done anything that's deserving of death, at least not at the hands of Rome, um, but there was a plot to have him killed once he was in my custody, and so I'm saving him again by sending him to you for safety, to get him out of there. And then he manipulates the timeline a little bit of this. 
Because he says, you know, the reason I rescued this poor guy twice um, was because he was a Roman citizen. But we know from the text that Paul, Lysias didn't realize Paul was a Roman citizen until later. But what he's telling Felix is, I'm a patriot through and through. And uh, so I saved this Roman from this angry mob. It reflects well on him as the humble hero of the story. And he neglects to mention that before he asked the question, before he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, he actually had ordered that Paul be flogged, that, that he had ordered the beating of a Roman citizen. Didn't happen. Because it didn't happen, I, you don't need to mention that. Uh, and so he just kind of leaves that part out because it's really neither here nor there at this point, right? Point is, Felix, I saved him twice. And so Felix reads the letter and he asks Paul which province he's from. This is a little clue. I had to do a little digging like, why does he ask him that? And this is a little clue to, where, where, that shows you that Felix had some power but not a lot. Uh, because what he was asking, he was trying to determine which province Paul was from because the Roman Empire was made up a lot of a lot of provinces. Some of them were actually Rome. They were provinces of Rome. And others were provinces that were under Roman rule, that Rome had taken over. But part of Rome's way of navigating like the geopolitical landscape was when they would take over a place, they would tell the local government, you can continue to function. In fact, we would like for you to. And your job is to make sure people pay their taxes to Caesar and that you keep the peace. And if you can do that, we'll even let you have your religion. And so he gets these local governments working, but it's a delicate balance then. It means that you want to respect the apparent jurisdiction of these places that have been now taken over and occupied by Rome. And so he asks him the question, what, what province are you from? Because he wants to know, should I bring in a second governor? a governor of one of these provinces that we've taken over, or are you actually from Rome, Rome? Like, are you a proper, from, from proper Rome? And so Paul says he's from Cilicia, which is part of Rome. And, he, uh, and so he says, okay, so I actually can hear the case myself. And so he puts Paul in the governor's house that Herod had built in Caesarea in a cell there. So... That's where we are so far in this story. With all this, that's what's happening in the ant farm here. All these people moving around, all these soldiers. And this story of the end of Paul's journey through Acts is really starting to ramp up. And we're seeing a lot of dominoes begin to fall that are eventually going to lead him to have this audience with Caesar. But right now, let's consider all the parts of this drama as they're moving around. You've, you've got the angry zealots. You've got Paul's nephew. You've got the centurion who's guarding Paul who takes Paul's nephew to Claudius Lysias. You've got Claudius Lysias talking to his commanders and saying, get 200 soldiers together in the cavalry so that we can move Paul from here to Antipatris tonight and then on to Caesarea. They muster the troops. You've got the infantry, the cavalry. You've got Felix. And you can see the ant farm. They're all just moving around. They're doing their work. They're saying their words. They're walking their steps. Some of them are doing this because they're trying to affect an outcome. Others are doing this because they're just trying to finish their shift so they can go home. But it's all just kind of happening. And then in that, there's Paul. If you step back and you look at it, you could say Paul's just kind of a pawn now. He's just, he has no control over anything that's happening. He's just being moved around. This apostle, this prisoner, he's just caught in the switches. And he's, for years now, he, he's, he's been focused on proclaiming Christ throughout Rome 
and bearing witness to Jesus. And yeah, he's been arrested a ton of times. He spent a lot of nights in jail, but he gets out. He keeps moving around. He keeps, but here he's kind of stuck. And it's not just the kind of thing where they're going to release him in the morning. And so he's at the center of the drama. He's seemingly at the mercy of his enemies and at the mercy of his captors. And so as we find ourselves rooting for him, what is it that you want for him? What do you want for Paul in this story that's happening right here? What would it look like for the Lord to deliver him? What should it look like for the Lord to deliver Paul? When I was working on this sermon earlier this week, Nate Evans and I were talking about it, and he reminded me of of Proverbs 19.21 that says this, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And we hear that and we say, yeah, yeah, the Lord's got this. Let me revisit that initial question I asked at the beginning. What is it that you want God to do for you? What is the fine print in the agreement that you have with him? Because when you look at a verse like this proverb, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, is what you mean by that. I can make all these plans and they can be flimsy and have holes in them, but God will bless me. That's what will happen. I can work on stuff and it can have all kinds of, you know, limits. But, but in the end, God will lavish me with good. My trajectory will be ever upward. When we think of what it would look like for the Lord to have this for Paul... If we're honest, many of us would say, well, this is what it looks like. It looks like the Lord delivering Paul from a bad situation into an objectively better one. That's what it would look like for the Lord to be faithful. That's what it would look like for the Lord to bless. That's what it would look like for the purpose of the Lord to stand. But what if this isn't what happens? What if Paul isn't delivered? Many are the plans in the mind of man, but the purpose of the Lord is the one that will stand. What if Paul isn't delivered? What do we do with that theologically? Do we assume, I guess God isn't working anymore here? Because what he ought to do is this thing that's so plain to me. What happens with Paul? He's delivered from a murderous mob in Jerusalem to a jail cell in Jerusalem. It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And then when those zealous, those zealots who who failed in their plot to kill Paul the first time, hatched this plan to kill him on his way to trial, Paul is delivered from his jail cell in Jerusalem to a different jail cell in a higher court. Sometimes, and that higher court, by the way, is determined to hold a trial. Sometimes when we're suffering and struggling, what the Lord has in mind for us is to deliver us from that trouble. Sometimes when we're suffering and we're struggling, what the Lord has in mind is to deliver us from that trouble, to take us from a hard situation into a good situation. 
But as we see in this passage, sometimes what he has in mind for us may be for us in this moment, moving from one hard situation to another hard situation. Sometimes what it may look like for the Lord to accomplish his purpose is to take us from a hard situation into an even harder situation. Are you okay with this? That is a theological question. Are you okay with God behaving in this way? Are you okay with being delivered from a mob to a prison cell? Are you okay with being delivered from a disorganized riot to an unjust courtroom? What is it that you want from God? What is it that you want God to do for you? When you think about this relationship with God, how would you describe the terms of the agreement, the fine print, the agreed upon expectations? Christians live with incredible hope. We have incredible hope, real hope. It is the hope that there will come a day when there will be no more crying, mourning, death, tears, or pain. Everything will be made new. That is our hope. It is immovable. But what about now? What about right now? That future hope is the reason for our peace. It's the reason for our peace right now. It's not that the hard stuff will one day be done away with. It's that right now, in the midst of what can seem so hard or so precarious, in ways we cannot see, God is at work. He's doing things we can't understand, but he is at work. Just as he was obviously at work when he delivered Paul from an angry mob to a jail cell in Jerusalem, and when he delivered Paul from this murder plot in Jerusalem to another jail cell in Caesarea with this higher court. The God who goes before us has us, and he is at work. And you may not be able to see it, and you may feel like things go from bad to worse sometimes. But for all the effort of all the different characters that are putting in their work in today's text, God is working in ways that none of them can see to make his glory known around the world so that you and I might hear the good news of a coming day when every broken reality will be set right. And that is our hope. He has you. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He does not always tell us what those are. But he has them. And they prevail. Draw near to him. Ask him to show you his kindness, even when the road that you are on hurts. Because sometimes the road he puts us on hurts.
what he has also done is he has spared no expense in your redemption. With the risen Christ at his right hand as his witness, he has spared no expense in your redemption. And that is where all of this is headed when your faith is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, to say to a room full of people that it may be God's purpose to deliver you from a hard situation to a worse situation is not something I would ever want to do in a way that is glib um, because I've had the experience of being delivered from a hard situation to a worse situation and I know that everybody here in varying ways has experienced that. And Lord, we confess that we wonder where you are when that happens because we do have some presumptions that we make about how this is supposed to go. Thank you for the way the book of Acts (coughs) is not primarily about the life and times of the Apostle Paul, but is really a book about the Great Commission. It's about the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's about disciples being made, churches being established, your body knowing you, loving you, walking with you, trusting you, (coughs) supporting one another. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for the ways that you are committed to doing more than we ask or think, for the ways that you will work on behalf of our good, even when we don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Thank you for blowing past our uh, dense imaginations and working anyway, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Keep doing that and keep giving us eyes to see the way that you are at work in our lives. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.